0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mindful.org. I'm Barry Boyce, founding editor of Mindful Magazine and Mindful.org. And I'm here today with uh, Richard Gerling. Hello, Richard.
1: Hey, Barry. How are you? Good to be here.
0: Great to have you. Richard is a certified mindfulness trainer whom I met about a decade ago. More than a decade now, I imagine. I think so. Um, Richard is a retired police officer and a military veteran. He specializes in training health, resilience, and human performance skills to first responders and other what he refers to as high-reliability professionals, and we can talk about that later on. I think, the, uh, as you'll find out, the center of uh, Richard's uh, approach is that he believes in everyone's innate resilience, humanity, and capacity to show up and thrive uh, in the middle of hard circumstances. And we're talking to Richard now, since the um, behavior of police in hard circumstances is once again in the spotlight in a very big way. And um, we've been talking to Rich over the years about uh, police work and mindfulness, and we'd like to explore that further now. So let's get started. So Richard, obviously right now as we're doing this, recording this, there's been lots of unrest and uprisings. In the wake of George Floyd's death um, in Minneapolis, and those are pointing to the need for big changes in police departments. What do you think we need?
1: Well, you know, I think the first thing I'll say, Barry, is that kind of like you alluded to in your introduction. I really believe in the humanity of of the humans walking around on this planet, and there's a there's a shadow side to to our existence, but there's also just a beautiful side and you know so despite the turmoil that we 're in today, uh, particularly in policing, um, there really is hope and so I wanted to frame our whole conversation with this notion of of hope in humanity because uh, I think that's really important because because this conversation will get to some difficult points that um, sometimes it's easy to lose sight of that. So I think that there's, there's two broad things that policing needs, and the first is systemic change. And that systemic change is going to, to look like a lot of different things. And I'm not going to get into the weeds and all that, because quite frankly, um, I couldn't tell you exactly what policing needs, but I know that we need some systemic changes. We probably need some adjustments to laws, both state and federal, here in the U.S. around um, how policing is, is um, how policing services are delivered in the field. We also need some changes in how police chiefs, how these chief executives of public safety interact with other community leaders, and um, I can talk a little bit more about that in a bit. But we need systemic changes, and that's you know some of that's the necessary bureaucracy. And some of that is problematic too, Um, but systemic changes. And then parallel with that, Barry, it's critically important that we have organic changes. So we have to resource the men and women in the profession of policing with the necessary organic skills to do the very difficult work of policing. And those organic changes are really what's going to support the system changes, because if we don't have changes at the at the ground level, changes in in skills training for first responders for police officers. We're not going to really be able to affect the intention behind the system changes. So we need system changes and organic changes to achieve police reform. So,
0: when you refer to organic changes, um, can you say a little bit about? more about what that means and where mindfulness fits into that picture, what it can offer.
1: Right. You know, the first thing I will say is that, um, you know, I have been a, a critic of police culture for years, um, having been inside the system. And I still maintain that one of the greatest failures of police leadership is the failure to lead a culture or maybe said more specifically, the failure to lead an ethos That is grounded in humanity rather than grounded in tactics or grounded in equipment or grounded in kind of the good old boy network but really grounded in humanity and in order to cultivate ethos we have to train from the inside out and so mindfulness is in fact the skills training that creates a foundation for personal transformation because you know without vilifying police officers and that's not appropriate to vilify the the large body of men and women who, who show up in service every day and do a, a a fine job in the middle of the complexity now that's notwithstanding some of the things we're saying that are that are both criminal behavior and just not not acceptable behavior if it's not criminal there's there's some of those outliers for sure, but the large body of men and women need to be resourced with skills, so that they know what their their ethos is when they show up to work, and and that's really been missing in police culture in America today. And we see a uh, kind of a deep divide between the culture that's emerged that's been driven by a number of forces, to include labor unions, to include the market economy. Uh, the divide between the culture and what the American people expect. And so what we have today is this, this extremist position between what, what people expect in the community and what police culture is delivering. And so that, that reckoning, I think, is a very positive thing, even though it's going to be very painful in, in many ways. Um, but training organic skills really means training skills and awareness and compassion, And so now I've just defined what mindfulness skills training is all about. We're teaching skills of self-awareness and with with self-awareness requires self-compassion, right? So we're teaching how to be aware of of what I'm experiencing as a police officer, how to be aware of of three domains primarily is where I train, Barry, and I train um, in the domain of the thinking mind. So we train awareness around, what are you thinking about, right? What are you thinking about in the middle of a critical incident? What are you thinking about when you're having a conversation with someone that's important to you? What are you thinking about when you're in a place of discomfort, when you're in a police citizen encounter that's uncomfortable? Um, What kinds of judgment is emerging and how do you work skillfully with that judgment? And how do we prevent, or I should say prevent, but how do we work with that judgment so that the judgment, the bias doesn't become the tail that wags the dog and how we, how we act with other people and whether that's on duty or off duty. So we train with the thinking mind. We train to to normalize it, to, to regulate it, and to become more skillful at all of the things that happen within the thinking mind. And we also train to a second domain of our, of our organic skills. And that is emotions and feeling states. And we learn to be aware of emotion as it emerges. Um, maybe to have sort of a skill of early warning of like noticing, Oh, this is interesting that, you know, anger is emerging and, and not to make anger go away or control it because controlling emotion is not, it's not a reality, but to learn to regulate it, to learn to accept it and work with it skillfully again, so that we don't dysregulate in emotion or we don't re- dysregulate in, in like feeling states that are sort of derivatives of emotion, things like ego, which I know you train a whole lot around. Um, and, and we, we could just skillfully be where we are and know that whatever is emerging in this emotions and feeling states domain is a normal part of the human experience and that we can regulate it with skill in order to show up and do the work that we do in policing the third domain we work with is the physical body and this is this is really where trauma competency emerges um just understanding how occupational stress and trauma sort of sets itself in the body learning how to to understand that process, learning how to process that trauma out of the body um, with movement and with other mind-body skills practices, along with other interventions like medicine and psychotherapy and other things, but really to fully become aware of this, this, what I like to refer to as this remarkable organic human machine, right, called me. In those domains and that's where we train mindfulness and that foundational self-awareness self-compassion self-regulation those fundamental skills allow us to show up in our vocation with greater awareness and compassion and greater capacity to take right action that the public expects that's consistent with with civil rights that's consistent with equity that's consistent with democracy and really, that's consistent with this ethos of equanimity, which is in fact missing from broadly from police culture.
0: Thank you for that discussion of those three domains. That's very helpful. Um, I'd like to have a few follow up questions on some of the things you mentioned. You talked about ethos as being central to uh, the approach that you take and that you're advocating. Is that a possible response to the bad apples argument? So you have the argument that, OK, as you were suggesting, the, the vast majority of members of police forces are um, good and decent people trying to do a good job. And then there are some bad apples. If we get rid of the bad apples, then it'll be fine, and there's you know complete distrust of that argument. Sounds like to me, you're saying, yeah, remove bad apples, but if you don't change the ethos, then there's no real change.
1: Yes, Barry, and so let's get let's dive a little deeper into this this uh, fallacy argument around bad apples. You know, Phil Zimbardo, who at Stanford in the 70s conducted the Stanford prison experiments and um, and later was an expert witness in some court martial actions in the U.S. Army around Abu Ghraib. You know, he's he's spent a career studying um, bad acting and and also heroic acting. And one of the things that Phil says is that we look at systems and we say this to ourselves, we say, oh, it's there's a bad apple in the barrel and the bad apple. Is, is toxic. And Phil flips that argument upside down. And I absolutely agree with him. He says, maybe the question we should ask or the model we should consider is it's not that there's bad apples. It's that the barrel itself is bad. And so what I have suggested is that the barrel of police culture is toxic. It's bad. And it produces predictably bad acting. And there there is it's it's a little more complicated than that for some bad acting however what we have is is a lack of a a barrel so let's say a lack of an ethos that holds a container a metaphorical container for for humanity for inspiration of the men and women in policing so that they know what guides them you know Ethos is is a waypoint along a journey. It's a number of waypoints along a journey. And that's what's missing. And, and it hasn't been well defined. And unfortunately, well, it is defined. It's defined by our constitution. It's defined by, um, you know, the, the the laws around civil rights that, that emerged from the constitution. But we're not really embracing that as an ethos. There's all kinds of things that have emerged to corrupt the culture of, you know policing, and you know, and although I understand the the, the tribal, um, the tribal desire to, to come together and support each other, and that's critically important in policing. But you know what we've done is we've created the thin blue line culture. We paint everything blue and other everything. If you're not in the thin blue line, you're 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 outside. You're an other, and we're creating. And and a very dualistic way of thinking, and it is not serving as well. And that's the same kind of thinking that results in tactical mental models that we saw in Buffalo, New York, where you have a riot team of, of good people, good police officers, but the way they're trained and the way they're thinking, because they're not guided by an ethos that allows critical thinking, they just roll right over a 75-year-old man who one of the cops pushed to the ground. And I mean, it's a great example of the barrel, right? If you isolate any one of those individuals, they probably tell you they wanted to do something different, but the forces of the barrel are powerful, and so we need to unpack those forces, dismantle those forces, and create a new barrel, a new ethos that offers space for critical thinking around humanitarian actions that are appropriate, that are, that are supportive of democracy, rather than... are. Oppressive in democracy.
0: So, thank you. I think we'll follow up on that a little bit later. I had one other question that based on some things you were saying earlier about judgment and bias. So, um, there are biases that we all have as part of our makeup, and um, then we have the need to make good judgments. How do you see the relationship between uh, biases that we have, and some of which can become ingrained and entrained and, and toxic, and good judgment? And
1: yeah, um, well, the first thing I want to say is I think that one of the one of the most significant biases in in police leadership and police culture is the refusal to believe that there's biases at all. So um, that's the first barrier to get through. And I think we're making some progress with that um, based on some statements we're seeing from police agencies, police leaders. So this is where trauma comes in, Barry. And predictably, exposure to human suffering, or said differently, exposure to occupational stress and trauma that goes unmitigated. So in other words, that's not adequately processed into recovery and healing and growth. Occupational stress and trauma predictably creates biases with police officers. And we see this on a regular basis, if you know, I could give examples, but I don't think I need to. And so part of the problem with bias and judgment is it becomes part of a trauma injury. Now I'm not making excuses, I'm explaining what the science is telling us around this. So I'm a three, four-year, five-year police officer, and I've seen so much human suffering, and I've seen so much of the shadow side of humanity that I'm really cynical. So this notion of being cynical is a predictable outcome of being a police officer if it's not properly mitigated, right? If there's not an ethos to help guide me from cynicism and, and darkness in my own thinking, then now suddenly everything I see is a cynical lens. So now it's, oh, this person's a victim of crime. Oh. They sure made a, a mistake by, you know, leaving their laptop in their vehicle while they went to lunch at the restaurant. No wonder, of course, it's going to get stolen. Or, oh, you can't leave your, your partner who's assaulting you. Well, if you just would leave, this wouldn't be a problem. Those kinds of judgments emerge, and they first are very subtle, and eventually they can become, um, really, open, right? And so we move through the world looking at other people as almost reducing their humanity, dehumanizing them through judgment, not because we wake up one day and say, hey, I'm gonna go dehumanize a bunch of people, but we wake up day after day without adequately addressing trauma injury, without actually <clears throat> seeking the appropriate kinds of interventions of medical intervention and psychotherapy and social and spiritual intervention to move into recovery and healing and, and possibly even post-traumatic growth so that we can come back to this ethos and serve again with skill and with equanimity. And so um, bias emerges and it creates all sorts of failures of, of, of judgment. It creates all sorts of um, discriminatory behavior. And, and it's, that's a very serious problem in policing across America. And part of the problem is those are fighting words, what I just said, because we don't believe it. <laughs> we being policing doesn't necessarily believe that part of the impact of unmitigated trauma injury is, is bias. Now there's the trauma component and then there's just the human component of, of implicit bias. We all have them. We all come from a place. We all have, uh, we, we bring our own baggage to policing. And if we're not willing to sit with that baggage and become aware of it and to skillfully work with it, sometimes with interventionists, which means training, which means psychotherapy, right? Social connectedness. Um, Then it just stews and fosters and becomes part of our equation of how we show up in the world. And it becomes unconscious.
0: So what about the biases that are systemic and entrained in someone culturally, you know, there have been, Police departments, many police departments, where a strong bias against racialized people was was the ethos and you know how do you uh, how do you counteract that when somebody's you know been fed a steady diet uh, of believing that another group of people are less.
1: Yes, very it, it, That is, you know, that is um, that is our challenge. So, what we know does not work is putting police officers in a training room, and telling them that that there's systemic racism in policing that that they in fact are also probably biased in some ways, and they shouldn't be that way. Okay, let's check the box and move on. What we really have to do is we have to compassionately and skillfully bring skills training to first to the police officer using mindfulness skills that allows us to explore the discomfort of this reality is this is an awakening we're having we're having right now with policing and mindfulness is is the intervention that's critically important at the ground level and in and in the boardroom with the chiefs and the leadership command staff you know we have to we have to confront the fact that the system is racist. And that's a very difficult thing to confront because we don't wanna believe that, right? So we need to unpack that. And then we need to confront this, this, this reality that all of us as humans, when we're in a system, we're influenced by that system. And there's enough, I mean, we could just read, you know, work of Phil Zimbardo and learn, oh, wow, I'm in a system, man. There's toxicity there and I'm impacted by that. Deep inside, we know this, but what 's my alternative right and so we need to train an alternative way of being that isn't inside this toxic corrupt barrel of systemic racism, which ends up being in individual actions of racism and it 's not just about race it's also about um, other marginalized folks you know it's 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 th- the homeless population that is often drug addicted and mentally ill and, and down and out. And we look at how many of those people are getting arrested and thrown in jail for pretty petty crimes just because we can, and just because we're frustrated, you know? And instead of being like, oh, well, just get a job. If you just get a job and get clean, you'd be, you'd be a good American. And it's just not that simple, <laughs> you know? But those are the kinds of judgments that are driving us so frequently with some of these very difficult social issues. And so back to this organic skill, you know, Barry, we really need to train this awakening and it needs to happen internally with every single police officer at at some level, right? At some level, we need to find a a transformation, a capacity and a skill in transforming from the old way into the new way. And for some, they won't want to do it. So we, we we can figure out how to work with that. But I think most men and women in policing have been waiting for this kind of leadership for years. They're looking for, please give me an ethos to believe in. Give me give me that commander's intent to believe in, and I will follow you. Because they sh- signed up to be in service to the greater good. And this is what we're talking about, is how do we maximize our capacity to be in service to the greater good, and now guided by this ethos of equanimity.
0: So- um let's talk about what the kind of training you're talking about actually looks like. I mean, you suggested that, um, you know, at the level of the Constitution, we already have some of the principles that are needed, that, you know, pr- the principle of equality of everyone, for example... And then there are policies to back that up, but then, in practice, it doesn't end up getting carried out. (laughs) Uh, And so, you know, um, how do you address that in training? What kind of what's your training look like?
1: Well, I think that. You know, a lot of really smart people, people who are smarter than I am, are going to build training models that are going to be very helpful for us as we lead forward in police reform. I think at the foundation of that training, we have to bring in mindfulness skills training. And what does mindfulness skills training look like? You know, in some ways it depends on the, the agency, the organization, the community. Uh, you know there is not a one size fits all way to approach mindfulness training for police officers, but there are some fundamental things. There's some things that, you know, I kind of refer to as the fidelity of mindfulness training for police officers. And first and foremost, we need to be trauma competent. And so I don't mean trauma sensitive. I I really, there's a lot of conversation around trauma sensitivity and, and, and I don't um, I don't think that's necessarily helpful. And I know I just made a bunch of people angry at me, um, but that's kind of what I do by now. I should be familiar with that. But the trauma competency is how do we operationalize this notion of being trauma informed? And what does that mean that, so how do we make that conversation operationally relevant and culturally relevant? And so that's really what I mean by trauma competent. We, we have to deal with both the trauma of the job and teach a growth mindset with mindfulness that really radically shifts how we view occupational stress and trauma, rather than seeing it as something that happens to us and we have to survive it, which is the predominant mental model of how we train around trauma in policing. But shifting it to a growth mindset, one that says, I've chosen this profession and I know that I will be exposed to human suffering. And I know that I will be injured as a result of being in service to others. And I can train for it. I can train to be skillful in that discomfort, to be skillful in that injury, perform the tradecraft of my work in service to others, and then move towards necessary interventions to move into recovery, into healing, and at least neutral buoyancy where I'm as strong as I was when I started. But maybe if the stars align, I can achieve post-traumatic growth. And so it's an entirely different way of viewing occupational stress and trauma. One that actually resources up us with greater greater hope, uh, and greater resilience and mindfulness training is a way to cultivate that mindset, but it's also, it comes back to these fundamental skills of teaching self awareness, self compassion, self regulation, and then awareness and compassion for the world around us. And I think that the training model itself very needs to be intensive. You know, this is not a three hour course. We've seen that fail up in Minneapolis. This is a, a, organizational effort that is both from the top down and the bottom up. So as we're training the boots on the ground, the men and women who are out in the field working, engaging with the public, we need to train with some intensity over a long period of time. And we must have the chief suite train as well. So the chiefs, the command staff, not only need to train in mindfulness, but need to be, they need to be training in mindfulness skills with, with greater um, intensity. And what we need is leadership teams to not only train in skills, but to embody those skills and to practice those skills as a way of being in how they lead public safety and how they show up in in that space of public safety leadership. So we need, again, top down, bottom up. And we also need to create infrastructure inside of police organizations. We need to build peer coaches. I could talk more about that later. We we also need to partner. This is unique to police training. We need to partner with community mindfulness teachers, and we need to have the influence and the accountability and the creativity and the diversity of our community trainers to be right alongside us in policing as we shape what mindfulness training in police looks like over the next 10 years. It's critical that we have that partnership because what we don't wanna see is we don't wanna see you know, a 40 hour train the trainer and get a bunch of cops trained in how to teach mindfulness, which that model is a failure by the way. You know that, but I'd say it out loud. That's what we do in policing. And then now we train our own people internally. We will corrupt it. Why? Because back to Zimbardo, the barrel is bad, right? The barrel will corrupt mindfulness if we don't do it well, we don't have external input on that internal container, Um, we're gonna see more problems.
0: So, um, you're not training individuals either, you're training teams, right, is that, you have to?
1: I think it's both, Barry, I think the focus really ought to be on training teams. That's that's how we're going to see the greatest efficacy here. But also there is a space to do individual coaching, to train individuals. But but really this is about team training and it's about smaller team training. So we're saying, I don't, in my experience, you know, 25 people is a, is a really good number to work with, um, and particularly if they are a team. Um, that's very helpful. I think there's also a model that we we train non-teams. So we take 25 people from 25 or maybe 15 different agencies across the nation, bring them together and, and do an intensive training together because that has power too. And so there's many training models. Like one, well, my favorite one is a three day residential intensive. I call it a resilience immersion training. And it's really, it's, it's a very intensive personal journey of mindfulness skills training. And, um, I love the model. It's it's really helpful for people. Uh, I think, frankly, I think that particular model or something very similar to it ought to be an annual requirement for police officers. And this is the thing. We can't just train once and, okay, good. Barry's a police officer. Barry's good. He's had his training. We have to continually refresh and, and advance this training in large part because what we know about occupational stress and trauma is that it erodes our human skills. It erodes compassion. It erodes empathy. It erodes our health and well-being. And we must continue this kind of training throughout the arc of the officer's career if it's going to be effective, if it's really going to be transformational. We have to sustain that transformation.
0: So you've described what, uh, what a mindfulness training for police could look like and some of the work you're doing. Um, You've also referred to the need for systemic change supported by citizens, civilian leadership, mayor's offices, uh, local police leadership, chiefs. Um, Wow, that's a lot. I mean, how does that begin to happen? You know, there's a lot of entrenched bureaucracies. And, you know, of the thousands of the police departments out there, how many are going to be open to something called mindfulness, which they're going to think of as weird? You know, it's a big question. I mean, how do you, what are the next uh, steps? And, you know, how do you see that?
1: Yeah. um, You know, I think the first thing I want to say is, is no matter, no matter how this institution of policing evolves, it is still a system and systems by their nature are imperfect and systems that are imperfect by their nature can and will cause harm on some level. So we're not going to get this perfect You know, reform is not, we're going to see unintended consequences. And and I'm not saying that that's a reason not to move towards reform. Um, But I think we have to be realistic about how difficult this is. And I don't know that I have a perfect answer for you, Barry, on, you know, how do we do this, um, except that I think, you know, if police leaders across the nation are, are serious about reform, I think it starts internally. And so in other words, I think that police leadership, um, you know, I'm talking chiefs and command staff, the top tier of leadership in an organization, every single one of those teams should, should start their own journey of contemplative introspection and transformation. And um, that can look like a lot of things. Mindfulness can sure be a component of that. But until we recognize where we have failed within the system where we can grow as an individual, as a human, as a, as a member of this, you know, democracy, but also as a member of this planet where we can grow as a leader in law enforcement, a leader in our community, until we're willing to really explore that, you know, we're going to the, (laughs) we're kind of going to the, the, the social justice gym here and then we're going to get a really kick-ass workout and, and it's hard and we have to step into that space of, of self-reflection and, and personal and professional growth. And I'm not convinced that that's, that there's inspiration to do that. Um, in some places there will be. And in those places, I think community can support that effort of transformation. And I think communities are going to see some remarkable reform and transformation with a, a new model of community collaborative public safety and, um, from my perspective, I'm not sure how we can achieve this kind of transformation without intensive integration of mindfulness skills training. It doesn't have to look like how I do it. It can look like a lot of different things. I just don't know how we can do it without this. Um, and, and, and you know to remind your, your, the, the audience, um, I've been studying this as a, as a student of stress and trauma for 17 years. And I keep coming back to my own practice in mindfulness. I keep coming back to the the demonstrated efficacy of mindfulness training by researchers. I keep coming back to the wisdom of mindfulness. And right now in this crisis, we have to turn in part to what we know about the wisdom and science of mindfulness and bring it in, maybe not knowing exactly what it's supposed to look like, but trying it on and and looking for change, but change begins right here. So
0: it seems like if you're talking about community cooperative public safety informed by mindfulness, it will be interesting if it's tried in a few places. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of a pilot like and and. Uh, as you're suggesting research, um, you know. You know,
1: as an example, Barry, so I just developed a executive mindfulness coaching program, six weeks. It's a combination of on-site and, and online um, for a larger agency in the Pacific Northwest that I'll be working with. And the intention is to bring mindfulness into their leadership efforts to lead forward. And it's a whole, and I'm not there telling them, oh, this is what policing should look like. That is not my space. I'm there to coach them, to facilitate the skills of awareness that allow them to reckon with their own baggage around policing, but also to reckon with this this notion of how do I train toward equanimity so I can sit in discomfort and lead forward in discomfort with my community to achieve what the American public is telling us we need to see in policing today. And so I think there's a lot of ways. That's just one training model that could be incredibly helpful. And I have this courageous group of of senior police leaders who are willing to step into that training space. And I'm really excited by that. You know, again, that's one way to, to move forward to integrate mindfulness into police leadership.
0: So I have just a few more questions. Um... We've been talking about systemic change, change at the leadership level, change at the community level. Is there anything you have to offer for that one uh, renegade officer who uh, approaches me at a mindfulness conference and maybe even kind of whispers and decides, you know, I'm a cop, and boy, do we need mindfulness, but I don't know how to get that started. You know, they're a lone wolf in, in, in their department. Or maybe there's one or two other people. Um, so what you thought about that person?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I've lived that life. So I can say some things about that. You know, I think the first thing is to become a student, become a student of one occupational stress and trauma and understand what the data says around that. Um, and then subsequently, uh, that journey will take you to becoming a student of resilience and performance and humanity, um, become a student of mindfulness cultivate your own practice, find teachers and mentors, and really dive into your own practice. Um, you know, as, as my first meditation teacher, Grant Rogers told me years ago, you teach from your practice. So cultivate that foundation. The, the other thing is to, to cultivate relationships internally. You know, it's, it's really easy when you are a change agent to wanna to vilify those who don't agree with you. And part of the mindfulness practice is bumping up against conflict and disagreement without vilifying or creating opponents inside your organization. So you want to cultivate respectful relationships, but also you can be very intensely uh, passionate and, and intelligent about your your arguments, but be a champion of the science, be a champion of of, of the need for change. And right now is, you know, it's not that difficult to make an argument around how the science of mindfulness is a, a natural, uh, evidence-based training to integrate into our efforts, um, and then really cultivate partnerships beyond the police department. You know, so this might be your meditation teacher, but it also might be it might be a community leader who's interested in police reform. Cultivate partnerships with people that are not like you, that don't look like you, that don't come from the same space as you. Learn, get uncomfortable, grow in that discomfort. and and raise your capacity to speak for change and to lead change and never underestimate your role in an organization of influencing others and leading change. You don't need to be the chief to drive change.
0: Thanks, that's extremely helpful. Um, So another question is, we have a community of mindfulness teachers, uh we don't have near enough mindfulness teachers to do um to offer mindfulness in all the realms that it could be helpful and for us to learn while we're doing that you know not go in thinking okay we're the mindfulness people we're going to come in and solve the garbage problem in your city for you. We don't know anything about how it works, but we know how to meditate. Um, So we have lots of mindfulness teachers, as I'm saying, though not quite enough. On the other hand, to date, to be honest, we've mostly been serving people who already have extremely comfortable lives. what can the mindfulness community do to support the movement toward widespread integration of mindfulness within policing?
1: Yeah, really great question, Barry. And I think that, um, you know, I think the first thing we need to understand in the, in the mindfulness training community is we need to understand our limitations. And you, you alluded to that, you know, um, if I'm really skilled at teaching meditation to, um, to teachers, I may not be very skilled at teaching meditation to police officers. And so we need to understand those limitations. It doesn't mean that we can't become competent to do that, but, but what I have seen a fair amount of are mindfulness teachers who kind of have this sort of one size fits all. Well, I teach mindfulness, so therefore I can go teach you know, police officers because I teach doctors or I teach this other population. And, and so the challenge is, I think what we need to do is we need to create training programs and um, and actually I talked to UCLA, to Mindful Awareness Research Center yesterday, and we're in collaboration conversations around doing training um, to do a workshop. Maybe it's a, a two-day workshop. We're not entirely sure yet, but to do a workshop for mindfulness teachers, that's all around two things, trauma competency in context to policing and cultural competency in context to policing. So we can prepare teachers to go into their communities and have conversations and build relationship. But the very first thing a mindfulness teacher needs in order to open the conversation to teaching mindfulness to a police agency is relationship. And what frequently happens is people come to the door of a police precinct, they wanna talk to the chief or another leader, and they say, I have a solution for you. And I will tell you, hands down, um, you're just gonna get rejected. Gotta figure out how to cultivate those relationships first, right? And then, you know, we can move into the space of conversation and training. Um, I also think, you know, that we, we probably ought to have more training components, more lesson blocks within our teacher training programs that, in, that include some cultural competency around policing. Um, so that as people are learning to become meditation teachers, they're getting a little bit of exposure to to that. And I know that, you know, like Fleet Mall does that with Engaged Mindfulness Institute. And um, I suspect that we're gonna see more of that in other training institutions. Um, We're not making people experts, you know, but we're just exposing them so they can begin that journey if they choose to and, and how to move forward and learn. The other piece we need, you know, moving away from the mindfulness teacher community is we really do need to build an infrastructure a a training schoolhouse that teaches not a meditation teacher, high standard, but a a coach, lower standard coach. And so I call this a peer coach. And so I partnered with um, a really skilled teacher out of San Diego, a guy named Pete Kirchmer, who spends a lot of his time with athletes. Um, And he and I have built a peer coach program where we're taking first responders, moving them through a relatively intensive, Training program over a period of four or six months depending on the program, and they graduate with the capacity to go back to the organizations and and, and to be to be a champion to speak intelligently to help lead to help lead alongside senior leaders and strategies around integrating mindfulness to even coach mindfulness to to introduce mindfulness to a small team of police officers you know do some fundamental mindfulness practices and talk about things like the science you know of mindfulness the science of trauma. And, and growth mindset and equanimity. And so really to, to bring this peer coach infrastructure into organizations so the peer coaches can work alongside, now we're back to the mindfulness teacher community, they can work alongside the mindfulness teachers in the community who can be mentors for the coaches, who can be teachers for the coaches. And so now we have this beautiful community-based mindfulness training model for policing that holds accountability, that brings synergies of diversity and and that avoids any kind of um, institutional systemic uh, corruption that, that a barrel can often bring.
0: So thank you. That uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, last question. So you've mentioned some things you're working on. Um, what, uh, what's your outlook for the future you know, what positive developments, what ongoing challenges, um, you know, what's next for you and for the integration of mindfulness and other related skills into policing, into, yeah. public, into public safety?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Barry. You're really good question. Um, you know, I am both heartbroken and hopeful. Um, so I'll start with that. And so the things I'm working on, uh, research. So I'm really just privileged to work with a remarkable group of researchers, both at Pacific University here in Oregon and the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. We have a a pretty significant project right now funded by National Institutes of Health that we're training mindfulness to uh, police officers in Albuquerque and Portland. we, we had to stop for a little while with because of COVID, but as of last week we're back on. So we're going to start training again here in a couple of months. Um, super stoked about that, you know, cause it's really good to get data around the efficacy of mindfulness with this population. Um, the peer coach training model, you know, that's evolving. Um, <laughs> it, it, trying to figure out the best way to do it. I'm, I'm hopeful that I can convince uh, some, some sort of uh, governing bodies that certified teachers to adopt the peer coach program is something that you know could come under some accountability umbrella um just give that some credibility and some accountability so that that pete and i don't have to manage that exclusively um to, to distribute some of that uh wisdom and accountability um and also with mindful badge i'm, I'm continuing work um partnering with the center for council out of los angeles to we uh jared side and i he's a director we co-developed a really amazing six-month training program. It's a leadership resilience program that integrates principles of of counsel with skills of mindfulness, and it's just beautiful. Um, That's being delivered at LAPD over a period of time, and uh, I think we're going to be delivering that in the Bay Area, um, the east side of uh, the Bay here pretty soon once we get sort of permission to, to start training again on the ground. Um, And then doing other trainings with Mindful badge. So I'm continuing to do the resilience immersion training. We've got a residential retreat coming up in Malibu in October, uh, followed by another October retreat in uh, the Phoenix, Arizona region. And then in November back here in Oregon. And again, that's the really intensive model. I love it. It's it's the transformational model. It's where I'd love to start with all police officers and other first responders. Um, And then I'm also, you know, COVID, like many of us, has taught me that um, maybe technology has a place in what I'm doing. And so I've invested in some technology infrastructure. I'm building out some online training that will be both synchronous and asynchronous. And uh, I got a pretty deep bench of skillful trainers, both from the (laughs) public safety community and, and from the mindfulness teacher community. And I'm just really excited to build uh, fundamental mindfulness skills trainings that way, and also advanced mindfulness skills training uh, using an online platform. Oh, that well,
0: that sounds uh, like a lot of forward movement there. I look forward to paying attention to uh, to those developments. Uh, just a footnote question. So, I'm sure many of our audience members will know what council refers to, but since you talked about doing it in one of the largest police forces in the world with some historic, famous problems, the LAPD, Um, and you're talking about going to the Bay area. Um, So what is council just briefly, what does that really refer
1: to? Yeah. So in context to what we're doing, um, we're taking teams of police officers who work together, and teams of you know, 20 to 25, and we're, we're basically facilitating a journey where we begin with two full days of training, where we, one, we teach mindfulness skills, but we, we sit in a circle, and we respect the principles of counsel. And so we teach them that when we sit in this space, it is a, it's a sacred space where people come together to show up with authenticity, to show up with compassion, and to listen right? To listen from the heart, to speak your truth from the heart. And, and it's a fascinating process that creates some really interesting synergy in a group like that. Um, and and I, I could speak more about counsel, but it's um, really it's about bringing officers together with this model of a way of being together and working through conflict and learning about each other and learning about ourselves is absolutely powerful.
0: Well, I think ending with finding a way of being as well as a way of being together is a great place to to, uh, sign off on this conversation. Um, So um, thank you so much for the time and uh, good luck in your work and we'll be keeping in touch.
1: Thank you, Barry. Appreciate all the work you're doing at Mindful. Take care.
0: All right. Bye now.